Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. During the recent attacks in Gaza, the Palestinian General Federation of Trade Unions in Gaza put out a statement that called for solidarity actions from the labor movement in the United States. Organizers and workers heeded the call. In early June, Bay Area activists successfully shut down an Israeli cargo ship from unloading goods at the Port of Oakland, with similar actions happening at ports across the country. The effort was spearheaded by the Arab Resource and Organizing Center. Since then, the Israeli cargo ship has totally stopped docking in Oakland because they're scared of another successful action. This is a huge PR disaster for the apartheid regime, seeing organized labor take the side of the BDS struggle in one of the biggest ports in the country. So to talk about how this victory was won and how it can be pushed further, I wanted to talk to the leaders of the Block the Boat action. So from the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, I'm joined by lead organizer Sharif Sakout and executive director Lada Kiswani. Thank you so much for joining me on the Empire Files podcast. Thanks for having us. So why don't we start with uh, you, Lada? Um, why don't you walk us through the latest action to block the boat in Oakland? Just walk us through that inspiring day. Um, so we were alerted in May in the midst of the rebellions in Palestine that the Israeli Zim shipping line had was attempting to return or had been scheduled to dock in Oakland for the first time in seven years um, during um, in that month of May. Um, once we were alerted about this, we reorganized ourselves um, to re-engage and reconvene the Block the Boat Coalition from 2014 when we had successfully stopped Zim from indefinitely docking at the Port of Oakland. Um, and so for a few weeks, we, we put out a call to action. We set up a text alert system so people could subscribe for regular updates, learning from our experience in 2014, that you know Zim would um, take many maneuvers and attempt to um, attempt to avoid any demonstrations or protests at the port. We spoke um, with ILWU Local 10, the International Longshore Warehouse Union Local 10, our dock workers here, and spoke at their union hall, shared with them a statement from the Palestinian General Federation of Trade Unions in Gaza calling on workers around the world, in particular in the U.S., to not unload Israeli Zim cargo. Um, and we began outreaching to the rank-and-file workers, outreaching to community organizations, um, prepared our team of logistics, media, security, research, so on and so forth, tactical. And um, for weeks, the Zim ship, the Zimvalen ship, it's called, that was the name of the vessel, avoided docking at the Port of Oakland because of the demonstration that was called for by AROC. And um, during this time, we called for an international week of solidarity actions with Oakland. Um, and at that point, that was we got responses from all across North America, including our comrades in Italy, um, in Spain, as well as in South Africa. And on June 4th, the Zim ship um, did attempt to dock at the port of Oakland. We mobilized in the thousands for the morning shift. Workers did not cross our community picket. We showed up, at, up again for the afternoon shift, so blocking six consecutive gates at the very same time to ensure that workers were met with a community picket, that they would honor that community picket, which they did. And we watched it leave um, in front of us around 6 p.m. on June 4th. It turned around and left the port of Oakland. And as since then, Zim has taken off Oakland from its port schedule. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I didn't realize that it was 
considering docking for weeks uh, that preceded this action and and wasn't because it knew that there were protests planned. That that's really incredible. I mean, it's hard to you know we can never we can speculate as much as we want as to why it did not dock, but. It was scheduled to dock. Other ships that were meant to dock did dock, and, and Zim did not for weeks until it did ultimately leave. Absolutely. And, of course, Seattle met you know police brutality, and that's what inevitably broke that hold over the port. Uh, was there any police response throughout the day? Police? Um, so the ILW Local 10 has um, a history of... A, not allowing police to escort them to cross any community picket. B, not crossing community pickets. And they've also demonstrated police and policing here in Oakland and have shut down the port in solidarity with Oscar Grant. So the police presence, they did show up in the afternoon. They stayed distant from the community members and from our from our, um, from our mobilization as well as from the workers and were asked to actually leave by the workers themselves. Um, there was no crackdown by police in Oakland. Our demonstration, the morning demonstration with thousands of people was very high spirited as was the afternoon shift and they left. In Seattle, it was, you know, it's a different context. Every location is a mm-hmm. different context we'll get into in a second. But there was not um, any police um, attempts directly, at least, or visibly, to try to impact our, our community pickets. And Sharif, talk a little bit more about what Zim is and why this company is an essential target of BDS. Yeah, definitely. So the Zim shipping line um, is actually older than the state of Israel and played a key role in actually the formation of the state of Israel. But during during Israel's massacre in Gaza in, in 2008 and 2009, uh, there was actually a call from dock workers to refuse call on dock workers to refuse to unload to offload Israeli ships. And so, in 2009, uh, South African Transport and Allied Workers Union in Durban, South Africa, actually became the first in the world to refuse, or it's the first in the world to refuse to offload an Israeli ship. And so, um, you know, back in 2014, there was another call again. And for us, we really understood the ship not just symbolizing the state of Israel, but also literally exporting goods that have been harmful to all of our communities. So we understand Zim as a different type of BDS target and being able to work with different workers, different movement spaces, making connections also to the ways in which Zim ships were literally bringing uh, surveillance tools, crowd control weapons, all those different technologies, as well as other other goods. But um, we're literally shipping them to the United States to bring to law enforcement here, which of course primarily use on black and brown communities. And so for us, the Zim ship really was a was a great target in that it actually was able to uplift these different movements and also build worker solidarity from Gaza to Oakland and now in 2021 across the world. Yeah, it seemed like a perfect convergence of many ideas on the heels of uh, the Palestinian General Federation of Trade Unions issuing that call to action and then seeing this Zim containers that housed multiple different goods, including uh, weaponry, you know, going to train police officers that are brutalizing uh, black and brown communities that are trained in Tel Aviv. Talk about the losses from this picket. Um of course, this was a nationwide, actually international effort, which is incredible. And I want you guys to comment on that, too. But first, uh, Lada, if you could talk about, you know, how you think that this impacted Israel. Well, you know, you often can assess the impact based on the response of your adversaries. <laughs> and so 
Um, in 2014, we knew that Zim attempted to dock at the Port of Oakland, was met with our demonstrations for five consecutive days. It came again a month later, it came again another month later, since then hadn't returned because the losses were too high for them to continue to try to dock at a port where worker community solidarity clearly demonstrated support for Palestine and not for apartheid Israel. Um, it's very difficult to assess numerically how much exactly Zim lost. People have um, scrunched, crunched some numbers since 2014. We know it's in the millions um, to lose one of the largest ports in North America as a place to dock. Um, and based on their public records, we know they've lost money since 2014. However, with the shifting um, you know, of, of their of their position within global capital, international commerce, they have now attempted to create a new shipping line. So this this line that was coming back to Oakland was new. Um, it's a new shipping line coming directly from China to, to the West Coast. And for us to be able to again disrupt that is clearly a high price for a state that, and for a company that is attempting to, you know, regain its position as one of the largest shipping lines in the entire world. Um, we'll also say that the same Valen ship that left Oakland went up north after leaving Oakland and kept going north to the furthest it could go, which was to a small town of Prince Rupert, a town of a few thousand, 12,000 people, majority First Nation people, not a very organized labor force or community um, or community organizations or, or civil society there. And they, we put out a call to action immediately as soon as we knew it was attempting to dock in Prince Rupert and within hours. Um, our First Nation comrades and Arab comrades there organized themselves to hold two days of consecutive community pickets, again stopping the same volunteer from um, docking at the port of Oakland and naming that, I mean, docking, I'm sorry, at the point uh, at the port of Prince Rupert and knowing that that port all most of the town works at the port, right? So there mm -hmm. was deep, deep solidarity for a small town like that to also stop this ship. Now, what we saw in Seattle um, was quite different in that our, our comrades in Seattle were successful and similar to Oakland, preventing the ship from docking for days. So they had prepared, they put a call to action, Zim avoided docking. There was also congestion at ports across the West Coast. Um, and once it did, and so they held community pickets, workers did not cross those community pickets. During this time, the, um, the, the Israeli consulate of the West Coast, which is actually based here in San Francisco, called um, the port authorities and demanded that the ship be unloaded, called the, the mayor and demanded that the ship be unloaded. Similarly, Zim CEO also intervened and called and made attempts to force that ship to get unloaded. And as history now tells us, the only way that ship was unloaded was through police break, uh, police violence. So the police arrested multiple people, nine people that day. Um, they brutalized um, the, the community picket that were simply walking in a circle, demanding solidarity with Palestine and asking for workers not to cross. They were met with brutal force and violence and arrests. And it was only then that the ship was able to dock So um, and to be unloaded. So it's clear to us that Zim is losing within popular consciousness. It's also losing within in the realm of of worker solidarity um, and that they align themselves with state power, with state violence when when necessary in order to ensure that their business is able to move forward as usual. Absolutely. And even though you can't necessarily calculate the uh, numerical loss uh, in terms of financial holdings of Zim, I mean, just the PR disaster of having such an enormous shipping line 
completely prevented from docking for days on end across the United States. I mean, that that is a huge feat, uh, Sharif. I mean, just talk a, l- a little bit about just the loss in terms of the narrative here. Yeah, I mean, it's um, as Lara mentioned, it's 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 a little hard to assess and crunch those numbers, but. Uh, we're seeing a lot of excitement. I mean, even as someone who was in this in 2014 and doing it now, the response for Block the Boat has been very different. And I think it also is is around the type of moment that we were in around Palestine, especially this year. But we, we were able to put out a call to action internationally and in North America only. You know, Lara mentioned Prince Rupert. Of course, we mentioned Seattle. But we also had actions in Vancouver, in Los Angeles, in New York, in New Jersey, um, we've had solidarity actions even at uh, Zim offices in Philadelphia and in Romulus, uh, Michigan, near Detroit. And so it's just been this this really amazing, um, this really amazing, I guess, initiative of BDS of of people feel really excited given this moment. And and really, the state of Israel is exposing itself as well as like being anti-worker because they've also been cracking down on workers who have been attempting to show solidarity or even refusing to cross these pickets. So we're, we're, I feel, doing that work in that we're able to build that consciousness both around solidarity with uh, people in Palestine, but also being able to bridge that solidarity between workers, as I, as I mentioned before. Um, and so it is exciting and, and we are continuing to build. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people realize, at least I did not realize that your organization, the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, I mean, this was the foundation of the call to action across the United States and and actually internationally. So how did you guys logistically carry this out? Because I would, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, thousands of people were involved in the initial blocking the 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 picket line at the beginning of the day in Oakland and it's it's just incredible to think of widening that scope <laughs> to a national and then international level and trying to somehow collaborate with all of these people around the world. Well, when we came up with the idea in 2014, um, initially we said, you know, let's, this was during the war on Gaza um, again, and there was, there are multiple demonstrations that we were leading here in the Bay Area, but people were taking part in, you know, part of all across the world. And we wanted to escalate tactics, you know, we were mobilizing on a regular basis and we all were very thirsty for an action that actually had a direct impact on apartheid Israel, an impact on the U.S.-Israeli partnership. And this idea of blocking the Israeli Zim ship seemed perfect for that. We could um, disrupt international commerce, disrupt the relationship between U.S. militarism and Israeli militarism, and be able to build with workers. Um, So build on worker community solidarity and the history of labor and actually shifting conditions for working people and oppressed people across the world. So we put out a call for the West Coast to shut down. So we didn't actually, Mm -hmm. we weren't prepared for what we were going to be uh, met with, which was mass support. People wanted to block boats everywhere. And soon, um, so we heard from Vancouver, from Los Angeles, from Seattle, from Tacoma, the demonstrations across the coast weren't as successful as ours. And that had to do with the local conditions. It had to do with the history of their their union and the relationship with that union and, and their community members. Um, ILW Local 10 historically has taken on militant action and solidarity with international movements. It is a black-led, black-based union here in Oakland and had, you know, had taken up the task of 
not unloading apartheid um, South African cargo, taking up the task of shutting down the port against the war in Iraq, um, taking action against violence of policing here in Oakland and across the United States. So we also are in a position where we know we have those relationships to the workers. This time around, when we put out the call to action, we knew that we wanted everyone to understand they may or may not be able to blockade the ship the way we are in Oakland, but we also thought it was important that our workers here in Oakland, ILW Local 10, felt the solidarity of workers across the world as well, just like we wanted our workers in Palestine to feel solidarity with workers across the world, and we wanted everyone to understand Oakland as an international win for Palestine, for BDS, for the fight against U.S. imperialism and the fight against apartheid Israel. And at the end of the day, we were successful in doing that. And we put out the call and we let people know, we coordinated with them. So while, you know, we we definitely um, wanted to make sure that everyone assessed their own local conditions, we wanted to ensure that they also were adhering to the principles and tenets of our Block the Boat campaign, which was to do long-term movement building. You may not have a successful blockade, but show up with a community picket, do the legwork to meet and organize with the rank and file to let them know that why you're showing up, share with them the statement from workers in Palestine, let them know what's going on in Palestine, build a strong coalition with different community movements and sectors, and, and do the necessary organizing so that you can have a successful picket and workers large and far, will not cross a community picket. And they didn't. They didn't cross any community picket. Um, and whether or not they were able to sustain that for multiple days has to do with the local conditions and if it makes sense. If it was going to negatively impact the workers in the long term and the, in the community or in these port cities in the long term, we encourage people not to continue a blockade until the time was right. Um, and so the international call to action was also met, as you know, with, with a lot of enthusiasm. And that's because Solid, you know, trade unions across the world have a long history of supporting one another and standing against U.S. militarism and imperialism and the state of Israel. Um, and we weren't in charge of what was happening everywhere. We wanted to share our lessons. So we've offered our resources. We've offered our text alert system to different port cities across the world, continuing to allow them to use that as, as, a, as a vehicle for organizing, um, repurpose our messaging and our press releases and our infographics, things of that nature, but also sharing with them and strategizing. We've been in multiple conversations with comrades in Europe, South Africa, across North America since May to talk about long-term strategy around boycott, divest, and sanction movements and the ways to do that work in a tangible um, sort of, in, in a way that actually has a tangible impact on the state of Israel, but also deepens relationships between labor and community, because we think that is truly um, the path forward if we are going to continue to try to disrupt apartheid Israel and I, the way we understand BDS as isolating Israel economically, politically, and culturally, that labor has historically played a huge role in, in doing that type of work, both for South Africa, but for other movements around the world. Incredibly well put. And I think that it is very important to put labor as the focus here. Um, and it is so crucial, the fact that the ILWU's, uh, you know, militant legacy in the Bay Area has helped facilitate the strength and success of such actions. And of course, I don't think that that's matched, of course, everywhere, but it starts with organizing. It starts with um, opening up that conversation and and education and things like that. And, and, you know, as someone who lived in Oakland for quite a while, I remember during Occupy Wall Street, also the longshoremen were um, standing in solidarity, blocking the port at that time. And I just thought how incredible that was. And it really made me 
you know, drove my understanding of how essential the component of of labor um, and working alongside uh, workers is because you can't do any of these things. I mean, BDS, that is the key here. And whenever people talk about national strikes and when we're adhering to the calls of Palestinian solidarity actions of striking, that you cannot do this um, without working with unions. Um, so, I mean, I, I know you briefly touched upon it, the fact that they have um, been militantly, you know, on the side of the right side of history, rather in terms of South African apartheid, in terms of the Iraq war. What is it, do you think, about uh, the local chapter that has been so strong and maintained this strength throughout the decades? Well, I think it's in their principles. So they, you know, within their principles, they also don't cross community pickets, mm-hmm. first and foremost, as ILWU. But I also think it's that legacy of resistance doesn't disappear. It's carried on in the union. It's carried on in the rank and file. But also that legacy of resistance inspires community solidarity and relationships. So part and parcel of why in 2014, we spent weeks before showing up at the port. People really encouraged us to just go block the block the boat this weekend, because at that point, Zim was coming every single weekend. And we said, no, that's not how you build with Local 10. That's not how you build with a union that has a long legacy of resistance to militarism and racism and state violence. What we need to do is build with them to allow to let them make the choice um, in an informed manner, but to also know who this call is coming from, who we are, why we're showing up to the port, to ensure that perhaps the leadership, perhaps people who were around in the early 2000s when the port was shut down against the war, or even whose parents or grandparents took part in the um, blockade or the not or the pickets that supported um, people fighting apartheid South Africa, perhaps some of the rank and files don't know that, right? So we we did three weeks of morning, day in and day out, showing up to the union halls early in the morning when they got their their slips to work and the afternoon to talk to them, to bring them donuts, to bring them coffee, to let them know this is why we're showing up. This is what's at stake. This is what's happening in Palestine. And this is what it will mean for you to not cross our community picket. And I think the work we did in 2014, also the thousands that showed up to the port in 2014, day in and day out, really showed the workers what kind of community labor power can can is possible in this moment, the ceiling that we can set. Um, and so the fact that we t- successfully with the support of them not crossing our picket stopped Israel from indefinitely stopping at the port of Oakland. When I say this was a win for worker community solidarity, it wasn't just a win for the community. This was a win for the workers, too, to demonstrate their labor power. And um, and we believe that that's also what laid the foundation for what was made possible in 2021. You know, workers before when once we were showed up and we went to the union halls this time around, everyone was like, oh, no, we know Zim. I know Zim. They're very well aware what Zim represents. They know what's happening in Palestine. They're familiar with Block the Boat and Iraq. They have respect for the call that came from the Palestinian General Federation of Trade Unions. So that relationship building, which is what organizing is all about, relationship building so that people understand their struggles as connected, but also our histories as connected and our fates as connected. And I think 2014 showed what's possible when we work together in deep um, and intentional ways. And 2021 showed the fruits of that labor, but also where we have moved globally around the question of Palestine and how how committed people are to taking action, and particularly those people who are working people, oppressed people, black and brown, indigenous people who understand our struggle more than anyone else. Um, And this is a moment for us to continue to build on that, which is why this time around, I think the international scope of the action was so inspiring and met with so much support, because I think everyone understands what's at stake today. And if 
the liberation of Palestine truly as part and parcel of everyone's liberation and as contributing to the struggle of all oppressed people. Yeah, incredible um, points there. And and it is really, really important for people to understand that organi- this is about organizing. This is not about just showing up to an action. This is the legwork that needs to go into a successful action. As you guys were mentioning, I mean, this is not the first time that your organization has done an action like this. This was back in 2014. If I'm not mistaken, the organization also was doing similar types of actions as a reaction to the flotilla massacre. Um I guess just talk about the genesis of BDS actions in general with your organization. What was the first one that that you guys did? For sure. Um, I just I just want to touch a little bit on what Lada said as well, kind of in response to your question, and then and then maybe we can of talk course. a little bit about this. Um, but I, I yeah, I want to say that like workers were. I, I felt like the work that we did in 2014, as Lada mentioned, really built the foundation for a lot of our relationships and what we were able to pull off in 2021. And it didn't just stop in 2014. It wasn't like we blocked the boat and then that was the end of our relationship with ILWU until 2021. We continued to show up and actually work with them around their struggles, um, around the port actually being bought by the Oakland A Stadium. And we showed up for them for May Day and, and we're always there between 2014 and 2021. So our solidarity isn't transactional. It was deeply felt and, and really exciting for the workers to also hear that, oh, there are workers in Italy who like are are thanking them for what they did and feel, you know, told telling other workers like, oh, we were inspired by what by what happened here in Oakland. And that's why we did what we did in Durban or in Italy or anywhere else in the world. And even being able to just talk to some of the workers in 2021, it was really uh, just such a, an amazing moment. I remember talking to one of the workers who told me my father was a longshoreman and he was a longshoreman in 2014 when the Zim ship was blocked. And I'm proud to be a part of this this time around. And so it's just amazing to be able to build those relationships and, and have that long-term solidarity with folks. Um, but as far as BDS actions, maybe Lara could answer this one as far as the genesis of our BDS work. Oh, yeah, happy to. Yeah, so, you know, for AROC, we come out of a local chapter of the Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. We used to, since 1987, be ADC San Francisco. So our office was the San Francisco chapter of ADC National. Um, and from from then on, we did a lot of mobilization against war and, and racism, discrimination, civil rights work for Arab Americans in the United States. In the early 2000s, post 9-11, um, ADC San Francisco, actually before 9-11, ADC San Francisco was involved in actually organizing the first divestment conference um, here in the Bay Area. It was the first divestment conference in the United States um, that Students for Justice in Palestine at the time had put on. And that was one of the first calls for boycott, divest, and sanctions against Israel. Um, and we built on that history over the years and then came the call from civil society in Palestine and it was around this time that AROC actually evolved out of ADC San Francisco. We decided um, across the early 2000s, um, amidst a lot of demonstrations and actions and campaigns, BDS included, that we had taken up against war and racism and also the direct assault on Arabs and Muslims and working people here in the Bay, that we actually needed to shift to do more a grassroots, local grassroots organization that built power and leadership in our community and not just mobilize. So that's hence how, and then also we, diverged politically from ADC National at the time. So we formed um, AROC. And, and AROC has historically, 
understood Palestine as a pillar of our work, has understood anti-imperialism as a pillar of our work. We're a direct service organization. So our daily work is to provide legal services to poor and working class Arab and Muslim immigrants, um, to defend them against deportations, um, to reunite families, to provide case management, mutual aid support for, for working people here in the Bay, for poor people, for houseless people, and, and to provide um, support and programming for our youth work, for our high school youth. We don't do that though as a charity. We learn from the Black Power, the, from the Black Panthers, in terms of the serve the people model. Um, we provide direct services to our community to organize them, to shift the conditions that made them need those services in the first place. And for the Arab and Muslim community, you cannot talk about being a migrant, a working person here in the United States, without talking about U.S. imperialism. And you can't talk about U.S. imperialism in our region without talking about the state of Israel. And we understand. Israel as an instrument to you of U.S. imperialism. So that being said, BDS as a tactic, as a way to isolate Israel politically, economically, and culturally, is is a is a pillar of AROCs. Um, we encourage all partner organizations to support and endorse BDS. We do not engage in any company, um, institution, um, program that has any relationship to apartheid Israel. We don't believe in normalizing Zionism. Or Israel or apartheid Israel in any way, shape, or form, and that, and that is because of our deep commitment to the liberation of our people, but all people. We understand that it's you know there's also an investment and an interest for all people to do the same to engage in BDS work. So historically, we've taking on local campaigns, international campaigns. I think Zim was a very block the boat is a very particular type of campaign in that for us we do not um, place a lot of value on corporate targets. We feel like it does not necessarily galvanize or mobilize our people in the same way and the impact um, in some ways can be contradictory. However, Block the Boat allowed us to target what arguably is a corporate target, Zim, that has relationships and ties to the state of Israel, but also um, allowed us to actually target the ports, the port cities, um, city municipalities, um, as well as to organize with labor and to do direct action. So all of those things combined really galvanize our community around BDS work. But we have, you know, we've worked with different other labor unions, encouraging them to also take on um, BDS resolutions. We are currently in conversation with several national and local unions about this same conversation. Um, and we're very proud to be based in the city of the first teachers union, UESF, that took on um, a resolution calling for BDS. So that is part and parcel of AROC's history, of ADC's history, of our movement history, and of our international solidarity work. Um, AROC and, and, and ADC come out of um, you know, we were founded by by workers, by labor organizers. We were founded by activists, by people who, who were former political prisoners, um, by by youth, um, and we were founded, in, you know, intentionally by internationalists. And we're an internationalist organization, and understand all BDS work and all Palestine work as fundamentally part of our of our commitment to internationalism. Which is why, as we speak, we're also endorsing a. Um, a car caravan for Cuba on Sunday, that we're also talking to our comrades um, about what's happening in Haiti and, and ways to offer solidarity, including our comrades in South Africa, who the trade unions had all just discussed and agreed to show up together to not touch or work the Israeli Zim ship that was, a, that was supposed to dock this last week. And since then, there's been close to what is, could be seen as a civil war here in, in South Africa. And so we are really wanting to lend our solidarity there. That's because for us, BDS is not just about Palestine. It's not just about me being Palestinian and a Palestinian leader in an Arab organization. BDS is about our deep commitment to international solidarity and the liberation of all people. 
it is really, really important to push that internationalism and, and also just the liberation of Palestine being linked to U.S. empire as an instrument, as a tool of U.S. hegemony, domination in the region and all of that. Um, I want to touch more upon this kind of shift in mass consciousness because, you know, I remember 15 years ago organizing against the Iraq war and bringing in the messaging of a free Palestine and liberation of Palestine was considered too controversial. We don't want to ostracize ourselves. We don't want to mix messages. This is this is not the same struggle, not the same fight. You know, fast forward to today, and it almost seems like you are not welcome in anti-war spaces unless you are on the right side of this issue, which I find incredibly optimistic and inspiring. And then I see this reflected in polling where you see, you know, 25% now of American Jews agree that Israel is an apartheid state. When you have, as minor as it may be, sitting Congress people unapologetically saying Israel's an apartheid state, Human Rights Watch, which is notoriously both sides in the issue, you know, condemning Hamas as much as it condemns Israel, they are unapologetically saying Israel's an apartheid state. I guess, Sharif, you know, I know you touched upon this, but I guess talk about how you've seen this shift because this organization has been you know, as you just outlined, Lara, I mean, you have pushed forward BDS as a central tenant, which is incredible. And I'm just wondering, how hard was that at the beginning? How have you seen the consciousness shift today? I, I guess if both of you can touch upon that. Yeah, for sure. I, I will say, I feel like it's it's been refreshing a little bit to see these different shifts. I know when I like when I went to college over 10 years ago, you know, Palestine was still taboo. Like no one wanted to even discuss it. And now, as you mentioned, like that is a requirement in like most leftist spaces to be on that right side of history. And so I think speaking to what Lara was saying around like we this this what we've seen in this shift is really just kind of the hard work of organizations, um, activists, the relationship building that we've done. Um, and really just all the work we've done to shift conditions on the ground, not just, you know, in Palestine, but also in the Bay Area and all over the world. And so being able to root Palestine in internationalism, being able to link it to indigenous struggles here in North America or to Black Lives Matter, um, that work takes a lot of time. It took years to be able to develop those relationships, to be able to make those intersections. And I think we're at a point now where the world is starting to see and understand what you know the apartheid state of israel really is and and what it means to all of our movements and the connections it has to you know our um the connections it has to repressing our movements as well because obviously the state of israel plays a very central role not just in in um terrorizing and, and oppressing palestinians but also in providing repression tools technology surveillance crowd control stuff to repressive governments all over the world who are rising up and, and fighting for, for dignified uh, lives. And so for us, really, you know, we, we understand Palestine is central to that and is central to the fight against imperialism. And I think that as we continue to organize, as we continue to build in our areas, um, more folks that we connect with, whether it's environmental justice, whether it's housing, immigration, like you see Palestine in all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that the Black Lives Matter movement um, and just the success and and reach, you know, tens of millions of Americans and a lot of them were going out into the streets for the first time becoming inspired by that shift in consciousness? Do you think that that helped, you know, this international solidarity? It's been 
mounting along for about decades now mm-hmm. since, you know, the Palestinian left comes from an internationalist history. That is the, you know, we are internationalist. And, um, but obviously over the years and the crushing of the left has siloed our movements and made it really easy for people to stay in their lane and not necessarily see their struggle as linked to one another. I would absolutely say the black liberation movement, the movement for black lives here in the United States has absolutely shifted the conversation. You know, um, they have made policing and black liberation a wedge issue here in the United States. Standing Rock made indigenous sovereignty and um, a wedge issue here in the United States. And collectively those two movements and their deep commitment to power Palestinian liberation made Palestine a wedge issue. So there's un- undoubtedly there's a connection there that thank you to our black and brown indigenous siblings for laying the foundation for us to be able to be part of a landscape that is truly internationalist, truly social justice, which is why, as Sharif was mentioning, every organization, whether it's your climate justice, immigrant justice, whether you're talking about imprisonment, policing issues, every organization has to reckon with the question what sooner or later. What is your position on Palestine? Um, And we're seeing more and more of that today, which is why during this recent assault on Palestinians in Palestine, um, that so many unions and organizations came out um, to speak out in ways that we haven't seen before in support of Palestine and BDS. It's because Palestine has clearly become in the United States a social justice issue. It's a racial justice issue. It's an economic justice issue. You cannot you cannot say that you work on, you cannot be a multiracial movement or movement working on any social or economic justice issue without taking up the question of what is what is my position on Palestine? I mean, you have people in Congress debating sanctioning Israel, you know, so we're at a point now where if that's happening and that's due to the movements on the ground, that's due to the decades long work of, of our community and other communities fighting for, um, for more people in power to understand what's at stake when it comes to Palestine. But this is a very different landscape than what we saw 15 years ago, very different landscape than what we've seen in a long time. And I would say not just for Palestine, but for all movements for justice. People are truly understanding, and I think COVID also um, exposed the contradiction here, that you know, you, we're not, even though we may be bounded by these constructed borders, our, our histories and our futures are not. And I I think the fact that here in the United States during COVID, people understood COVID as this global pandemic, right? And they also understood their resistance to it as global. Similarly, I think people fighting for basic rights, for basic needs, for basic dignities and liberation across the world. Now, I think folks more than ever understanding we are a global community and the stakes are high and we have to understand that just like our adversaries understand that. They're coordinating, they're sharing strategies and tactics. Um, They are clearly learning from one another and it is on us now to do the same, to be able to build a true international movement that contends with power, um, that shifts power and and that actually creates the conditions to build power in our own communities, to be led by those most vulnerable, those those who have all the answers, because we, at the end of the day, can assess our conditions all day long. We can be demonstrating all day long, but until we're able to actually build power for the build power in our communities until we're able to come up with solutions and visions for the world that we're fighting for, which we're doing now, which I would say many movements that we're a part of, including the rising majority, which is led by Movement for Black Lives and which AROC is a leadership um, partner in, we are contending with those questions. What is the world we're fighting for? What is our long-term strategy here? How are we building multiracial movements? And how are we actually shifting and building power? Those are the kinds of questions we're in now, and it's a really exciting time. And I think 
the fact that we had that, that hasn't been lost in the last couple of months. I mean, I would just name that Walk the Boat started in May, right? It was at the height of the uprisings in Palestine um, this year. And we, I assume Zim thought that it would die out after the uprisings died out. We know that in Palestine, people continuously resist whether or not it's a spectacle in the news. But we also now know that people will continue to show solidarity whether or not it's a spectacle in the news and that people will continue to call for BDS. People will continue to disrupt business as usual with Israel and people will continue to fight back against policing in some of the most impossible of conditions and fight back for land and, and indigenous sovereignty as we speak now here in the United States for our, our siblings who are fighting for their for their basic rights. So I would say that it has been long, it's, it's a long standing legacy of resistance, but there have been gaps because of the siloing and crushing of the left. And today we're seeing a resurgence of that internationalism long overdue, but also built on history of our ancestors and our mentors and freedom fighters who led the way. Of course. And speaking of siloing off, uh, you know, activism and, and communication, I mean, big tech, of course, today purging Palestinian voices. Uh, you know, you have Benny Gantz um, going to, I think, Snapchat and Instagram or something and basically saying you need to, you know, crack down on disinformation, kind of taking a cue from the U.S. combating, quote unquote, fake news, which I think we all know what the inevitable effects of that will be, which is purging pro-Palestine voices and and helping Israel control that narrative because they've lost the PR game so hard and they've lost the moral high ground on an international level. Um, and then, of course, you have this, you know, news coming out about Israeli spyware infiltrating people's phones and computers, doxing uh, of activists by organizations like Canary Mission and just general infiltration by Zionist groups on college campuses, attacking pro-Palestine solidarity movements in terms of divestment efforts, trying to marginalize them and threaten their livelihoods, essentially. Um, so I guess as you know, as su- such successful activists on this issue, how do you recommend people organize and communicate about this kind of activism without living in fear or paranoia about, you know, being watched and surveilled and and fucked with? Essentially, we always say be prepared, not paranoid, right? So yeah. I think that that, <laughs> that is really at the heart of it. Is of course our adversaries are going to try to counter organize. Of course they're going to try to undermine our movements. That should be. If we're impactful, that should be expected. Um, the question is, how do we prepare ourselves, but also how do we prepare our allies? And I will just give a, one example for handing it back to Sharif around when the Movement for Black Lives came out with their platform and they clearly showed solidarity with Palestine in their platform and supporting BDS. They were met with repression. They were threatened with loss of funding. And that didn't stop them from moving forward. That didn't scare them away. Instead, it actually made them double down in their solidarity with Palestine. I think that's what we're seeing more and more of today is every time Zionist institutions, state or non-state actors and their collaboration with the United States, non-state actors and state actors attempt to undermine or repress Palestinian solidarity, it just reinforces that solidarity because it really exposes what we're up against and why it's so important for us to be um, in, in struggle with one another. And that we have to just be able to ensure that we equip all of our allies, all of our communities with the tools necessary so they know how to respond, so they can be prepared, so they're not blindsided by these attacks. Um, and that they come up with alternative sources of funding if necessary, if that's what's at stake, or that they also prepare their bases and members and communities for the assaults they're going to face, for the smearing on, you know, in media, for the misinformation that is bound to happen. Because at the end of the day, 
that should be expected. But our role is to equip ourselves, to organize ourselves and to prepare ourselves for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whenever whenever we embark on any type of um, campaign or initiative as AROC, our allies are always going to be targeted. And so I agree with Lara, we always need to make sure that we're prepared, not paranoid. And ultimately, like these fear tactics are meant to silence us and are meant to scare us away from being able to organize. But especially as people living within the United States, we have a role to play being within the belly of the beast. You know, we aren't the ones who are under occupation um, or, or dealing with other other issues around the world, but we have a role to play in the ways in which the United States has, um, you know, has funded Israel, has supported Israel in all that they do. The occupation of Palestine would literally not be possible without this government. And so um, really, at least for me, I, I understand like we all have a role in this movement. And for us living in the United States, we have a very particular role in making sure that we continue to push back against the silencing, against the fear, and and um, and also build our relationships with people who are also facing the same thing for showing solidarity with our movements. Absolutely. And Sharif, just to uh, piggyback on that, I mean, I just wanted your comment on these anti-BDS laws that are in place now in 30 states, either by executive order or state legislatures passing them. I just actually won a lawsuit against the state of Georgia challenging their anti-BDS law. It's now unenforceable. Um, they are trying to change the law to, to render my case moot, um, but it is unenforceable as of now. And whenever we have seen these laws be challenged, they are rendered unconstitutional because they are. They are flagrantly standing in violation of our free speech, our right to boycott. This is a passive action that is enshrined and protected by the Supreme Court back during the Montgomery bus boycotts. I mean, it's just absolutely astounding to me that um, that so many states have passed something that completely undermines basic civil liberties. But then again, I wanted your comment on this. I mean, do you think that this is in part because Israel is scared of this growing movement? They know that they are trying to hold back the tide of justice. Um, and that is why these laws have passed. I mean, what do you think? I, I would agree with you. I absolutely think that there is a shift and they understand that. And that's why they're also being so aggressive against our movements. And even if they know nothing will stick necessarily, it does cost us time. It costs us resources. It, it costs us sometimes even our lives, whether we're looking for like jobs or we're just trying to navigate in this world without having some Zionist blacklist site literally just haunting you wherever you go. And so for me, I, I see a shift in that they are really trying to push aggressively to pass these anti-BDS laws wherever they can, because they are on losing ground, um, at least when it comes to the PR and, um, and, and the way things are shifting. And so, um, and we're also seeing the ways in which these anti-BDS laws are playing into how we're organizing internationally. And it's not just also in the United States, but all over the world when we're trying to talk to different port cities we're recognizing some of the limitations of some of those areas because of the ways in which the state that they're in engages with Palestine and the state of Israel. And so it's been it's been really interesting, at least in that regard. Um, yeah, I don't know if Lara wants to name anything around that, too. Well, I wanted to jump in here really quickly, Lara, because there's been huge news, of course. I mean, you guys are coming on right after Ben & Jerry's, uh, the ice cream company, just announced that they are not going to be selling in the occupied territories. Ben & Jerry's have been a target of BDS for quite some time because they've, you know, 
posited themselves as being a socially conscious company, progressive. Um, and so a lot of people were like, well, where are you at when it comes to Palestine? And, you know, some people are calling this a half measure because they are still saying that they're going to have a partnership within 48, within the borders of, of 48 Israel. Um, but I think it is still a huge feat in terms of BDS strategy. Um, but then you have people who are reacting in the most absurd ways possible. You have Bill de Blasio saying he's going to boycott Ben and Jerry's. Uh, you have, you know, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Israel basically threatening to punish Ben and Jerry's, saying that they will be boycotted. I mean, you have people just freaking out state senators, different politicians of all stripes condemning this, saying that this is an attack basically on the United States for Ben and Jerry's to say they're not going to sell ice cream in the occupied territories. So I guess what is your response to this announcement and just the reactions to it? You know, I think it's clear that Zionist hegemony is cracking um, and they are scrambling with figuring to figuring out how to respond and how to maintain their stronghold over not only the narrative and and popular consciousness, but also um, in terms of on the ground work and their and the impact they're trying to have. Um, I I would also say this Ben and Jerry's win is huge. Um, you know, there's it, we we have to grapple with the contradiction of any corporate win and what it means and how far you can put push a corporation. Um, but at the end of the day, the corporation has taken a strong position, and our adversaries are responding very aggressively. I mean, they're they're showing their own sort of fascist tendencies and 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 um and i would also say that at the end of the day it's these little wins actually compound and really create a the conditions for a broader terrain of struggle for palestine globally and um, so we can't underestimate what it means for a company like ben and jerry's who folks have been organizing for over a decade now trying to get them to stop selling um in the west bank and now they were successful in this political moment right so we could assess what impact it does or doesn't have in terms of significance politically, but on the ground, materially speaking, and when it comes to what it means for the state of Israel and for the U.S. government, who's deeply invested in apartheid Israel, for these kinds of wins to happen, it just opens up so widens the opportunities for our movements to really advance other BDS campaigns. Um, and I think that there's we're in a in a moment where there's a lot of potential there, um, and. The fact that they are, you know, making threats against um, against the company, but also against state where you said there were also BDS laws happening across the world and across the United States. I think all of this is indicative of them um, really being in a dilemma around how are we going to continue to normalize Zionism, to normalize apartheid when popular consciousness is saying otherwise, is moving in a different direction. And the only way they seem to be able to maintain this is by criminalizing, literally criminalizing solidarity with Palestine. This you know, they've done this with all other movements. We're not exceptional in this regard, but I think we can learn from um, other movements in history when attempts to criminalize and, and quell movements can be successful in the short term. In the long term, it continues to galvanize support for those very same movements. And and the fact that they're trying to weave in anti-BDS laws within anti-bigotry and anti-hate legislation passing in different states, within educational bills passing in different states. With the fact that they tried to stop ethnic studies and they successfully did a, a robust anti-racist ethnic studies curriculum for high school students in California. It was the hands of the pro-Israel interest groups that stopped that from happening. And why? Because Palestine was included. They are so scared of the popular consciousness shifting in, in towards solidarity with Palestine, which it is, 
that they will go to any limit and will not and actually are being counterproductive in that they're exposing their own racism, they're, expo they're exposing their own oppressive nature, they're exposing their own fascism and fascist tendencies. And in the long term, I think that's only going to deepen solidarity between our movements and specifically solidarity with Palestine. And it just reeks of desperation because they know it's not a tenable situation. They know that this can't sustain itself. Um, and every time that they go on some sort of vicious you know, tirade against bombing Gaza or brutally assaulting people in the West Bank, the world is watching and they, they cannot dictate the truth anymore. I mean, people are seeing the reality with their own eyes and the mass consciousness is on fire right now. And I really like that you said that this is this this moment matters. Of course, every moment matters whenever this is in the news and stuff like that. But I feel like right now it is working more than it ever has. And I really do feel like it is the beginning of the end for the apartheid state because it cannot survive. It, it really can't. But but still, I think that BDS is slightly abstract for some people who don't understand how to tangibly like engage with BDS throughout their daily lives. You know, they have the BDS app on their phone maybe, but it's like, okay, I won't buy Sabra hummus or whatever. But it's more about the isolation, the cultural isolation. I mean, everyone can like send out a tweet barrage to like a musician who's pledging to play in Tel Aviv or something like that. Like everyone can participate in these activities on a daily basis. But I guess what advice would you both give to people who are really concerned about this, who want to act, how they can participate in BDS on a day to day basis? Well, I'll start off with saying, at least with Block the Boat, I feel like Block the Boat is is kind of taking BDS in a different approach, where we are building with workers and we are building with larger communities to target specifically the Zim line. And what I really love about this campaign itself is that we are, you know, we're blocking international commerce with the state of Israel. That is a material impact on like the state itself. And so for me, I feel like even something like Block the Boat, which is just one BDS target, can actually do so much if it's well-coordinated and if it's taken up by other port cities and if they're successful. And so, of course, we see, like, um, you know, so many for Zionist forces really attacking not just Block the Boat, but any BDS movement. Because, again, like you mentioned, Abby, they're scared of that narrative, that cultural shift, the, the cultural isolation. And so I, I think, you know, for all of us who are living in the States especially, BDS is one of the like easiest ways to get involved in being able to show our support to the people of Palestine, especially when so many Palestinians on the ground don't have that choice of being able to move away from Israeli products. Um, again, we have a certain role to play here in the United States. And so whether it is like boycotting Sabra Hummus or HP printers or, or any of those kind of individual boycotts, we should definitely encourage that. But we should also encourage pushing you know, for divestment, sanctions, for pushing for larger targets like the Zim company. Um, and again, that's that's like the bare minimum we can do at this point. Um, but obviously, there's always so much more to do. I would just add that I think oftentimes our allies will ask, well, how do I support Palestine? And what organization do I get involved in? Or what do I need to do? And we will just respond with, look in your own backyard. If you're in any any nonprofit, any corporation, any company, it's very likely that Israel has a stake or has a hand in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that there's some way in which you can work against greenwashing, pinkwashing, whitewashing of Israel at your own, from your own vantage point in whatever sector you work in. Um, and I think that is 
another great advantage of BDS as a tactic is it allows everyone from their various positionalities to take up the task of solidarity with Palestine and against U.S. imperialism. Um, and over time, those compounded efforts, whether it's somebody in their own company saying we shouldn't do business with this Israeli company and successfully pushing back against that, or whether it's you know teachers saying we're not going to engage with any dialogue with Israeli um, or take any trips to the state of Israel because we've engaged in BDS or city officials doing the same. All of that over time um, has a compounded effect in successfully isolating apartheid Israel. And over time, really what we want to do is expand the terrain to hit the iron wall top to talk about sanctioning Israel. Ultimately, that's what needs to happen, whether it's going to happen from the United States or international community sanctioning the state of Israel. There needs to be international pressure to isolate Israel and to ensure that this their, their violence is not made possible, right? So, uh, you know, our advice to anyone in any, in any terrain, in any sector, in any movement is to find, learn more about the ways in which in your own sector, you, your company, your organization, your institution interfaces with apartheid Israel in one, some shape or form. And because at the end of the day, Zionism and Israel isn't this far away thing. You know, if you're based in the U.S., Zionism and Israel is right, right here in our own backyards. And really it takes up just doing a little research, learning about your own conditions and finding out opportunities for you to express solidarity. And if hopefully your sector doesn't engage with the state of Israel, what can you do to show solidarity with Palestinian people? You know, rather than taking a trip um, sponsored by ADL or the JCRC, you can take a trip sponsored by Palestinians to go visit Palestine and build solidarity. You can educate your, you know, your community members and do teachings on Palestine. And you can continue to engage in existing BDS campaigns um, to continue to isolate Israel. I think there's plenty of opportunities and one of the main things is just political education, which is lacking so much in our movements today, to continue to do deep political education to make the connection so that when you do endorse BDS, you know exactly what you're doing and you know what you're up against. But also, you know the impact you're having in the history that you're a part of. Right. And this is all on the basis of international law um, and making people understand that, you know, advocating BDS is really adhering to to uh, legality and that which Israel just flies in the face of in every way. Um, and I do think that, of course, the success and the mass consciousness spreading to such a rapid degree, of course, is a testament to the to the groundswell and mass movement building that has been so effective over the last couple of decades. And I am so excited and really optimistic about where it's going. And A Rock and the work that you guys have done have just been incredibly inspiring to me. And I know millions of other people around the world are taking cues from your work as well. Um, what other campaigns are you guys involved in right now? And how do you recommend people uh, do similar actions in their communities? Um, yeah, so like Lara mentioned earlier, um, we've been in a fight within the state of California around ethnic studies, where California actually did pass ethnic studies curriculums for high school students to be able to learn from, which of course sounds amazing. Um, but the curriculum itself when it came out, written by different um, educators and folks within the ethnic studies world, and they included Palestine and BDS, it received so much attacks from Zionist right-wing forces to the point where the state curriculum now has been so watered down that it's not only it's not only impacted just the inclusion of Palestine and it's completely removed Palestine from this current curriculum, but it's also impacted the pedagogy of what ethnic studies is. It's not some depoliticized multicultural study. It's the study of power, a 
oppression of institutions. And so even in California, we're now um, trying to work with different districts across the state to make sure that they implement a curriculum that actually is true to the pedagogy of ethnic studies and not the curriculum that has been watered down because of these Zionist forces. And beyond that, nationally, we're also seeing fights around critical race theory. Um, and a lot of the conversations are connected to what ethnic studies is. And so we're even seeing this battle with Zionists when it comes to education. And of course, folks in universities have been targeted for, uh, you know, for their organizing for years as well. So one of the campaigns that we've been engaged with is the Liberated Ethnic Studies Coalition, um, specifically around saving Arab American studies with the inclusion of Palestine and also not, not moving away from ethnic studies as it's supposed to be intended to be taught um, and kind of reframing that. So those are that's one of the campaigns we've also been engaged with. Um, and then previously, we also recently won a campaign around uh, Stop Urban Shield, which actually was the largest. Um, it was a weapons expo and police training program that brought together not only Department of Homeland Security, police, sheriff's department, ICE, but it also brought the Bahraini army, the Israeli army, to literally train police officers and law enforcement in this country on the weekend of 9-11 each year in the Bay Area. And after five years of organizing, we were able to end that program, which was another huge win and which also linked um, how policing uh, and abolition and, and those struggles are connected also for the struggle for Palestine. Right now, you know, uh, after learning our lesson from California and what took place with ethnic studies, we are now launching the National Liberated Ethnic Studies Coalition, and that's going to be happening on July 31st as part of the Free Minds, Free People Conference. Our goal there is to coordinate with regions across the country who are similarly either fighting for ethnic studies or defending against the attack on right-wing attack and, and racist Islamophobic attacks on ethnic studies. Um, to be able to equip them with the tools necessary to have strong local coalitions for ethnic studies and a curriculum that they can use that's truly liberatory, anti-racist and internationalist and including Palestine. And this is, you know, we've, we're seeing in, in recent months this onslaught of attack on critical race theory in this in education as a battleground for right wing forces to be able to shift the, and to roll back the winds of, of movement for black lives and, and, and our indigenous siblings and Palestine solidarity work here in this country where these have now become, as I said earlier, you know, clearly wedge issues for people to tend with, but when it, to contend with, but specifically as it relates to curriculum and anti-racist curriculum, that is a threat to the right wing. And so attacking ethnic studies, att attacking critical race theory has clearly become a priority for Zionists. Um, it was the pro-Israeli interest groups who are at the or are leading the forefront against the attack on ethnic studies and, and, and now aligning themselves with the right wing attacks on critical race theory. So we're hopeful that in the coming years, we can continue to build movements across the country that are able to hold, reinforce the tenets and liberatory pedagogy of, of ethnic studies, but really in service of all students so that they can learn their histories of struggle, learn about what it means to be agents of social change, learn about what's made possible through solidarity, and also to you know turn back the clock and to undo a lot of the racist white supremacist learning that really are ingrained in our current educational system. Well, thank you so much, Lada and Sharif. I really appreciate it. Of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, AROC. Everyone check out the organization and please donate because they are doing really incredible and inspiring work. You guys, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Abby.